You'll turn with me there one last time as we finish our study tonight in 2 Kings together. We're at this point now looking at the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah. Really, the southern kingdom of Judah falls kind of in three sequences or in three conquests, you might say. Three different times, Nebuchadnezzar uh, of Babylon, who is now the world ruler, Babylon becoming sort of the next strong empire on three different phases, if you would, goes up. Uh, comes against the people of Judah and with those attacks or sieges brings back captives to the land of Babylon. It stretches over a period of time from around 605 BC all the way to the end as we'll see the third deportation takes place in 586 BC. So there was an extended period of time. There were some gaps in between but we saw last time together the first conquest at the beginning of chapter 24 there when Nebuchadnezzar came up there against Jehoiakim and made him his vassal for three years and at that time uh, he was able to bring back some captives in 605 BC which was the first deportation we mentioned in that first deportation went those like Daniel and Shadrach Meshach and Abednego they were taken under that uh, conquest when brought back to Babylon at that time uh, we saw then a second deportation in chapter 24 that happens around 597 BC and that was particularly referred to in chapter 24 and verse 10 uh, down through pretty much the remainder of the chapter that we finished in that time where a large group of people were then taken back uh, to Babylon at that time uh, a lot of those who were uh, skilled in their labor those who were strong and fit for war were taken back a lot of the weak and the impoverished and the poor were left there in the land of Judah so again another great weakening to Judah at that time. As we left off last time together, we saw that what was taking place is that not only was Babylon gaining more and more control over Judah, and he was very patient in the process, but he now was even establishing sort of puppet kings upon the throne there in Jerusalem. He would actually determine who would be the next king rather than the monarchy determining that or rather than the people of Judah determining that. Uh, and we read last time uh, that the king of Babylon, verse 17 of chapter 24, he then made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. So Zedekiah is now on the throne. He's put there actually by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Uh, Zedekiah was only 21 years old, we saw, when he became king. He reigned 11 years total. But again, keeping in mind, during these reigns, they're very weak reigns. Uh, he's in control, put in the position of being the king over the land but really is under the thumb of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, that world empire at this time who's gradually taking over more control of Judah. He, like many of the other kings, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 20, where we left off last time, told us that these things were happening, all of them, because of the anger of the Lord. This happened in Jerusalem and Judah that he finally cast them from his presence. So again, this is just God's judgment now coming on the southern kingdom, even as it did 
right on the northern uh, part of Israel. They were conquered by Assyria about two centuries prior to this. Uh, the southern kingdom lasted a little bit longer because they were faithful to Lord a little bit longer. They had a few good and godly kings in the midst of the time of their reigns. But the southern kingdom ultimately of Judah committed the same sins, the same idolatry, the same turning away from the Lord. And so ultimately now God's, God's judgment is coming upon the southern kingdom. But yet we're told in chapter 24, verse 20, this last verse, which transitions us now into chapter 5, that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now, it will be this rebellion of Zedekiah that will kind of be like the final stake in the ground, the final nail in the coffin, if you would, that brings closure to the conquest of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar at this point. Now, something to keep in mind as we look at Zedekiah's rebellion here and the problems that that causes at this time, again, just for your frame of reference historically with some of your prophetic books in the Old Testament, as I said, in the first deportation, Daniel and his friends are taken back. So at this time, you have Daniel and a number of other young men. They're brought and they are put into the palace of the king of Babylon there where they would learn the ways of the Chaldean people and they would ultimately serve really as those in government positions. So Daniel had great influence among the government and the rulers of Babylon. We see that there throughout Daniel's prophecy. It's also during this time that Ezekiel is brought back, Ezekiel the prophet, another large book in the Old Testament. Ezekiel is brought into captivity in Babylon, and he will be in Babylon living among the common people during the time of his visions and his prophecies. So the book of Ezekiel describes uh, Ezekiel's prophecies he receives from the Lord during the 70-year captivity as they're there in Babylon, the, the people of Israel. So he's among the common people. Daniel is in the palace of Babylon. And then a third prophet, Jeremiah, Jeremiah is not taken to Babylon. He's actually left in the area of Judah. And Jeremiah speaks his prophecies among the remnant or those people who were left back in Judah and never taken captive into the Babylonian Empire. Remember, there were many of the people taken away, but they did leave some in the land of Judah, those who were unable to revolt, those who were weak, those who were poor, so that the land could still be maintained. And Jeremiah remains back in Judah prophesying and speaking the word of the Lord during the time of the conquest and these captivities. I bring that to your attention because we know that Jeremiah, as he's prophesying during this time, is speaking to kings like Zedekiah. And Jeremiah's message, unlike the false prophets of his day, was basically saying, listen, the best and wisest thing that we can do is just submit to what God is doing right now. We've rebelled against the Lord. We're reaping the consequences of our own wrong decisions. This is the discipline of the Lord. This is God's judicial judgment. We might as well settle in for these 70 years during the captivity and receive the discipline that God said he would bring upon us. What we have done has brought consequences upon us. And for us to fight against the consequences will do no good for us. Because ultimately we deserve these consequences and really though God was using Babylon as the instrument to bring his judgment and the consequences for Judah's sin, 
Ultimately, it was the hand of the Lord that was bringing the discipline and the consequences and allowing the painful consequences as a part of this process. They had made many poor decisions and their sins were sort of just being reaped now. And what Jeremiah was saying is, look, don't fight against Babylon. Don't resist them because ultimately you're not resisting Babylon. You're just resisting God. You're just resisting what God is trying to do. Just yield and let what's happened unfolding in your life and, and don't fight against it. It was all of the false prophets who were saying, listen, don't listen to Jeremiah. Throw off these Babylonians. We're God's people. We don't deserve to be treated like this. We have rights and we have entitlements and no one should treat us mean like that. And, and all the false prophets in that day were saying, fight and resist and, and kick and strain against and don't suffer through these things. Fight for your rights. And Jeremiah was saying, no, just yield. Just yield. Don't resist. Just let God's plan unfold. Embrace the consequences. They have a good purpose. It's God's divine plan and just yield to it and submit and you'll do much better as the result. I bring that to your attention because Zedekiah was hearing these things and Jeremiah 32 tells us that Zedekiah so despised what Jeremiah the prophet was saying that he actually threw him into prison because he didn't like that Jeremiah was telling him not to rebel. And as the result of that, we see verse 20 here of chapter 24, that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. That is, contrary to just Jeremiah's prophecies, he rebelled in general. And let me just read you from Second Chronicles 36, because it kind of gives you the idea of what Zedekiah was doing. It says in Second Chronicles 36 <clears throat> that he, uh, verse 12 or excuse me, verse 11, Zedekiah, 21 years old when he became king, he did evil in the sight of the Lord as God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar as we're reading in our text tonight, who made him swear an oath by God, but he stiffened his neck, that's never good. He hardened his heart, that's never wise either, against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders and the priests of the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and they defiled the house of the Lord which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by the messengers rising early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and his dwelling place. But it says they mocked the messengers of God they despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. So this is the backdrop of what happened that ultimately led to Babylon conquering them. And all the while, it says God was sending prophetic voice into their life one after the other. Jeremiah was just one of many prophets trying to warn the people, trying to caution the people. But though God was trying to speak to them, they were scoffing and mocking and resisting and stiffening their necks because they wanted to do what they wanted to do. And ultimately it led to their own demise. So Zedekiah here thinks to himself, you know what? Uh, he may have taken some of us out, but I'm going to take one last stand. And he tries to rebel now against the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 25 says, Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem. 
and encamped against it, and they built a siege wall against it all around. So the city was besieged until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. So again, keep in mind, Nebuchadnezzar was not a nice man. And so he has had just about enough after almost two decades of gradually conquering Judah, and now this rebellion takes place, and it's kind of like, he's, you know, th- that's it. And now with full force, he goes up, he lays siege around the city of Jerusalem, the capital city there, it tells us. This would be around January of 588 BC, and for two years, he lays siege against the city of Jerusalem before they ultimately break through and finally conquer. It says the city was besieged from the ninth year until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. Now, again, just a reminder, as we said before, when they would lay siege to a city, that's basically was a gradual way of just weakening the people inside so they could be easily conquered. They would usually build a wall around and they would just surround the city and they would let nothing go in. They would let no one come out until they ultimately would just starve the people within the city walls because they would run out of resources and they would be weakened and emaciated and they would be struggling on the inside. And as a result of that, their defenselessness condition was easy to come in and conquer. So they lay siege for two years. They encamp around the city. They build a siege wall against it. Verse 3 says, By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine had become, look what it says, so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. And then the city wall was broken through and all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans still encamped all around against the city. So, after two years, things become so desperate inside the city, it says, verse 3, as the result of the siege, the famine became so bad there was no food for the people of the land. Now, if you read Lamentations, short little book uh, connected next to Jeremiah's prophecy, written by Jeremiah as well, Lamentations, the idea is a lament, mourning or grieving, is basically a short little book that describes the horrific and desperate conditions inside of Jerusalem during this time of the siege. The starvation, the desperate conditions, it describes literally mothers ultimately taking, killing, and eating their own children. I mean, cannibalism is one thing, correct? Cannibalism is grotesque enough. But when you have a mother... And it literally says, mothers taking their children whom they cuddled. Again, God's trying to draw this analogy. that Here's this mother affectionately cuddling, loving, feeding at one time her own child, nursing her own baby. And now things are so desperate, this mother turns and actually begins to cannibalize and eat her own children to stay alive. That's how desperate conditions got. That's how desperate conditions can get when people rebel against God. When they turn away from God and they ultimately put themselves in a position of being so desperate and defenseless and things fall apart, the famine became so bad inside the land. These were the kind of things that were happening. So the city walls now broken through and notice the men of war who should have been defending the city. They are so weak themselves, the military soldiers and men of war, it just says they fled. They were defenseless. 
And so the enemy comes in and he breaks through and he conquers them quite easily. And can I just say, as we look at these things, please don't overlook the reality of the beautiful spiritual analogies that are weaved all through this. This is exactly what the enemy of our soul wants to do in our lives to get us into a spot where we begin to sin and behave foolishly and continue to turn away from the Lord and rebel against God and do things that we know are wrong and think, well, we can get away with it. And then God speaks to us and he sends people into our life who caution us and counsel us and speak the word of God to us. And, and we don't listen and we don't listen and we don't listen. And then ultimately there's no remedy and things then begin to spiral out of control and fall apart in our lives. And the enemy comes in and, and he's patient, is he not? He's patient and then he kind of just surrounds our life and he strips away our defenses like the men here, the city was defenseless and he breaks through the walls that we once had up keeping our life safe and protected and he comes in and he just begins to conquer our lives. And he begins to bring pain and problems and great difficulty. And, and like the people of Judah who were doing unthinkable things, it is amazing how if we continue to allow the enemy access into our life, the unthinkable things we are all capable of doing. Things that we would think, I could never imagine I would have done that. But yet it's amazing how when the enemy gets us into a weakened and a vulnerable state and deceives us so greatly and makes us so desperate because of the consequences of our own sin compounding upon us, the unthinkable things, the, the depths that we can actually sink to as people. And here, sadly, this is what was happening. Many in the nation had fallen prey to this. So now they break through the wall. The king, it says, verse four as well, went away by the way of the plain. So now the king, Zedekiah, who once was rebelling, now he's running for his life, terrified. Verse five, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and they overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him. Notice, you know, no, no friends anymore when things get desperate. All of his army said, every man for himself. <laughs> the king didn't even matter anymore. So all his army scatters from him. They capture him there in the plains of Jericho. Sad, look what happens, verse six. So they took the king, this is Zedekiah, brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they pronounced judgment on him, verse 7, and then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put the eyes of Zedekiah out, bound him with bronze fetters and took him to Babylon. Again, interesting, Ezekiel 12, even Ezekiel prophesied that this very thing was going to transpire, that Zedekiah would be captured even if he tried to rebel, it would not work. If he tried to resist what was unfolding, Ezekiel prophesied that he would still be brought to Babylon and that he would not be able to see what was taking place. And the prophecy was rather obscure, and yet now we see exactly what Ezekiel was talking about there in Ezekiel chapter 12 that when he's brought back and he's judged there in Babylon, Zedekiah, he has so enraged Nebuchadnezzar because of his rebellion and the hassle that he put Nebuchadnezzar through that he had to besiege the city for two years because of this little rebellion that he conducted trying to throw off Babylon, that when he gets there, uh, Nebuchadnezzar shows no mercy whatsoever. I mean, do you see what it says they did in verse 7? It says of the king of Judah that they killed his sons before his own eyes. Imagine that. His own children murdered right before his eyes. 
And then it says they put his eyes out. I'm sure that wasn't a pleasant process, but understand as they blinded him, basically what they did is they conveyed in his mind and in his mental you know, images and memory banks. You know, when you see something, it's like it's hard to get an image out of your head. You see something horrific. Maybe some of you, like, you know, we, we've, we, at certain points in life, maybe we see something very horrific that we wish we didn't see, and now you, you can't get the image out of your head, and it's hard to get the thought out of your mind because you saw it. Imagine he sees his sons murdered. They then blind him. So the last thing he ever sees is the image of his sons being murdered right before his eyes. And they leave that now as a way of just torturing his mind. Blind him. It says they put him in fetters. They bind him in shackles. And again, as we look at this, this is, listen, exactly what the enemy of our soul wants to do to us. The Bible says that Jesus, speaking of the devil, said that he's a thief and that he only comes to rob, to kill, and to destroy. And this is what he wants to do in my life and in your life. He wants to get us to a place where we behave foolishly and we rebel against what God's doing and we sin and we, we get ourselves into a position where the enemy begins to get us defenseless and then he takes control and he captures us. And look, when he gets a hold of us, the devil is ruthless, man. He's absolutely ruthless. And he wants to destroy that which matters to us. He wants to destroy our families, destroy our children, destroy our loved ones, ruin lives that matter to us, strip those things away from us. The devil wants to blind us and he wants to imprison us and shackle us and make us like prisoners so we're enslaved to things and we no longer have control and freedom in our own lives, even as this evil king did this this is exactly what the the devil the ruler of the this present evil age is seeking to do in the lives of people spiritually so verse 8 says it was then in the fifth month on the seventh day of the month which was the 19th year of king nebuchadnezzar king of babylon that nebuzaradan the captain of the guard a servant of the king of babylon came to jerusalem so what we're going to read now here, verse 8, really all the way down through verse 21, is now this third deportation of people of Judah being taken captive over into the area of, uh, of the empire of Babylon. So this is now the third and final deportation. We're now historically at 586 B.C. And it's in 586 B.C. that Judah and Jerusalem fell, and the third deportation of captives were taken away. And interestingly enough, mark this date because it's from 586 B.C. onward, really, other than the remnant that comes back <clears throat> under Ezra and Nehemiah, which we'll see, that Israel is taken out of its land and doesn't have complete sovereign control of its land all the way till May of 1948. For almost 2,000 years, the consequences of the things that they did. Though they come back and they b begin to regather, it is not until miraculously that 2,000 years later that they come back and they have complete sovereign control over their land again from this date forward. So from 586 BC, they're now taken. Nebuzaradan, the military general, comes in. Verse 9, it tells us he burned the house of the Lord. And the king's house, so he set to fire the temple of God. All the houses of Jerusalem, that is. All the houses of the great he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem 
all around. So take notice. What did they do? They set on fire the territory of Jerusalem. They set on fire the temple. They break down the walls around the city of Jerusalem. Again, the walls of a city were its defense. It kept what was not good out and it kept what was good in. That's the purpose of walls and barriers. The reason for walls and barriers around a city were for that very purpose so that it could stay healthy on the inside. And so that's what walls and gates and fences do exist for. They exist to keep what is good in so it doesn't wander out where it shouldn't go. And walls and gates and barriers also exist to keep what is not good and not healthy out. That's why people built walls around their cities. It was wisdom. It preserved the good thing that was happening within and so that the worship life could continue. So they now break down the walls of Jerusalem to make the city vulnerable and defenseless. Now take note of that, and you might want to jot your notes here, Nehemiah chapter 1, because this is where Nehemiah's book comes into play. Because when Nehemiah asks about the city and then goes back to rebuild Jerusalem, it says the walls are burnt down and the gates and everything are burnt with fire. And he goes back in that rebuilding project as the call of the Lord comes upon his life and he goes back to restore and rebuild those things so that the worship life of the people of Israel can happen once again as the Jews return in that process through Ezra and Nehemiah's time. Verse 11 says, Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive the rest, notice, the rest of the people who remained in the city and the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon with the rest of the multitude. Excuse me. But the captain of the guard left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers. So as we said, they took the, the, the cream of the crop, if you would, skilled laborers and those who were strong and wealthy. They took all those to their empire so that they could enhance their empire and they left back in the land, the farmers and those who could still take care of the land. So it just didn't become overgrown and out of control. So they did leave a remnant back in Judah. The bronze pillars, verse 13, that were in the house of the Lord and the carts and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord. The Chaldeans broke in pieces. So now they're breaking and damaging all the temple furnishings. Remember, built under the time of Solomon's reign when he established the temple worship by God's command. And they carried their bronze to Babylon. So they're stripping the precious metals to bring back just for the wealth. They also took away the pots and shovels, trimmers and spoons and all the bronze utensils which the priest used to minister, the fire pans and basins, the things of solid gold and solid silver the captain of the guard took away for the wealth of the precious metals. The two pillars, one sea and the carts which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze and all these articles was beyond measure Verse 17, the height of one pillar was 18 cubits and the capital on it was of bronze and the height of the capital was three cubits and the network and pomegranates all around the capital were all bronze and the second pillar was the same with a network. So that's referring to those two pillars, remember, that were at the front of the temple, uh, had the names Jason and Boaz on them to strengthen and to establish. And they were symbolic, these two pillars, as you went to the temple of the Lord to remember that it is in the worship of God that one's life is strengthened and a life is established. It's built on something secure and stable. 
And that when you went into the house of God, you would see strengthen and establish. Yes, as I seek God, as I listen to his, obey his word, as I worship the Lord, my life will be strengthened. I'll have a strong life and my life will be established and built on something solid. And it's interesting that now as the enemy comes in and conquers, they take away these pillars. And they say, your life's no longer going to be strong and your life no longer will be established. It's now going to be in disarray. As they steal all the articles and the furnishings, they even take down these two pillars to kind of conquer and disassemble the temple and ruining it as they're ultimately going to burn it. Verse 18, and the captain of the guard took Sarahiah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three doorkeepers. And he also took out of the city an officer who had charge of the men of war five men of the king's close associates who were found in the city, the chief recruiting officer of the army who mustered the people of the land and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. So Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Now, as the Bible gives us record of them conquering Jerusalem stealing and and plundering everything from the temple, breaking things, but then taking a lot of the precious metals and the articles of the temple and the furnishings that they use for their worship life there in the temple and bringing them back to Babylon. You take notice that nowhere in the accounts we have in Scripture here, in Chronicles, is there any mention of what happened to the most precious furnishing or piece in the temple, which was the Ark of the Covenant the place where the blood atonement was made for the sins of the people and where, remember, the Shekinah glory of God or the presence of God would be manifest among the people there in the Holy of Holies. So because of that, of course, uh, people speculate. And they say, well, okay, well, maybe the Ark of the Covenant was taken and hidden by Jeremiah. Or some say that one of the relatives of the Queen of Sheba came and got it and others say it's hidden away in this location. Do you want to know where it's at? Only God knows. That's where it's at. I don't think Indiana Jones is accurate. I I don't think any of the ideas are accurate. They're all speculative. Whenever the Bible is silent, sometimes it's because God wanted to be silent about the subject. And look, let let me tell you this. Here's what I know about humanity. If we actually knew where the Ark of the Covenant was... Or if we found the Ark of the Covenant, do you know what would happen? You would have the first church of the Ark of the Covenant and everybody would be worshiping a relic and there would be this overemphasis and infatuation with this furnishing and peace from the temple that was so precious. And there would probably be this undue, exaggerated interest in the Ark of the Covenant. If God wants the Ark of the Covenant to be found, he'll let it be found. If he wants us to know where it is, he'll make that evident. Here God purposely, again, it's not like the Holy Spirit had a memory lapse and, oh, I forgot to write in, forgot to mention about the ark there. And then it kind of missed the editor's desk in the word of God and everything else. You, you talked about everything but the ark. We forgot. God purposely did not tell us. Uh, so again, we can speculate. People like to do that and people can search uh, as much as they want, but God kept it silent and didn't disclose it to us. Uh, Verse 21 says, Then the king of Babylon struck them and put them to death at Riblah, that is these 
individuals who were brought back, the recruiting officer, army officials, people who were brought. He put many of them to death. And thus they were, Judah carried away captive from its own land. So again, Judah carried away captive, notice, from its own land. That land was supposed to belong to Judah and to the people of Israel. God gave it to them. The problem is Jeremiah's prophecies and others tell us that one of the reasons for the conquest of Babylon and the 70-year captivity is that for 490 years, they neglected to observe the Sabbath year. Remember, the Sabbath year was one of many different instructions God gave in the law where just like on the Sabbath day, every seven days, they were to rest, they were to refrain from work, they were to worship God, and they were to cease from their labors. It was a picture of Jesus, how in him we rest. We cease from our labors. We don't have to strive to work and try and be right with God. We just rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what the Sabbath ultimately spoke of in a symbolic way. But there also was a Sabbath year where every seventh year they were to let their land go fallow and they weren't to work the land they weren't to do anything they were to just work the land for six years and then let the land rest for seven years and god said if you do that as an act of faith i'll provide for you now the problem is the people of the land for 490 years or 70 sabbath years because it was to happen every seven years the people didn't do that they became insecure. They thought God might not provide. So they thought, you know, I mean, the six year has been really good. I mean, we might as well work the seventh year too. And, and, and if we don't work the seventh year, what if we don't make it to the eighth year? And instead of trusting God to provide, they greedily overstepped their bounds. And they worked even more than God wanted them to work. And instead of trusting God and letting the land rest, which God had a purpose in it, it was symbolic, but more than that, it let the land replenish and it was healthy for the land and it made the crops come more fertile in the years ahead. And they kept ignoring selfishly, greedily, and probably just in their own insecurity and working the land and working the land and working the land. And so at the end of 490 years, God said, you know what? That's 70 times you've ignored that Sabbath year. That land is mine. I gave it to you, and you know what? You can't rob God what belongs to him. So God said, those 70 years you stole from me, now you're going to be out of the land for 70 years, and I'm taking back what's mine. You know, what a great reminder. You and I can never get ahead if somehow we think we're going to short-circuit God, cut an angle on God. Somehow we're going to take what belongs to God and keep it for ourselves or use it for ourselves. And, and God says, you know what? I'm not going to lose out anything. I, you're just going to be out of the land for 70 years. And that land will still get what I want it to get. You know, it's a good reminder for us. It never works to rob God what belongs to him. Trust the Lord. God's a good provider. The same God that provided for the six years promised to take care of them the seventh year and all the way into the eighth year, it was an act of faith for them to learn that God was their source. God was their provider. God was the one that would honor what they did. And so this is one of the reasons, so you understand, on top of their idolatry and evil actions and shedding of innocent blood, this was one of the main reasons it was 70 years of captivity because God was letting that land have its rest before he ultimately let them come back after 70 years of captivity being put out of the land. Verse 22 says, Then he made Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, governor over the people who remained 
in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left. So uh, at this point, Nebuchadnezzar, they don't need a king. They're just a small remnant that he left behind. He takes this man, Gedaliah, and he appoints him as sort of a governor over the people, the small remnant left there in Judah, so there would be some oversight and order. Uh, Gedaliah, interestingly enough, we know was a friend of Jeremiah and was someone who was sympathetic to Jeremiah's testimony and prophecies telling the people to yield and submit to the king of Babylon because really that was just yielding and submitting to what God was doing among them. And that's probably maybe one of the reasons why he was appointed by Nebuchadnezzar because he liked that he was sympathetic to the cause of uh, Babylon conquering them. It says, verse 23, now when all the captains of the armies, they and their men heard the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah governor, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Ishmael and Johanan, yes, I'm not going to try and pronounce all those names. Those are the ones, they and their men. And Gedaliah, verse 24, took an oath before them and their men. And listen, this was the message of Gedaliah. And guess where he got this? He listened to the word of God that was coming from the prophecies of Jeremiah, said he was a friend of Jeremiah. And he listened to what Jeremiah said. He respected Jeremiah, that Jeremiah was speaking the word of the Lord. And he wasn't speaking what the false prophets were. So this is what Gedaliah was saying to the people as their leader at that time. He said to them, verse 24, do not be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans, another name for the Babylonian people. He tells them, dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon and it shall be well with you. Do you see what he's saying? Don't resist. Yield to what God's doing. He's saying, don't fight against God's plan. Dwell in the land let them be in control because ultimately he's saying this is something God's doing. God's in control. And boy, this is an important reminder uh, you know, for the people to hear because I said all the false prophets were saying, no, we need to throw off the yoke of Babylon. They don't deserve to treat us like this. They're more wicked than we are. And what right do they have to be in control of us? And this isn't fair and this isn't right. And yet Jeremiah and Gedaliah were saying, listen, serve the king of Babylon and it'll be well with you. They were saying, just, just flow with what God is sovereignly allowing to happen. Let it unfold. Don't fight against it. And you know, sometimes that's a really good word of the Lord for us because sometimes, whether it's because of our own mistakes in our life or whether it's because of the sins of other people and we're, sometimes we suffer because of the sins of others. And sometimes when those things happen, the hair on the back of our neck raises up and we feel angry or entitled and so we want to fight against it. You're not going to treat me like this. You're not going to suppress me like that and I'm going to rebel and I'm going to resist and I'm going to fight against it and ultimately all we're really doing is fighting against the sovereignty of God and we're just resisting what God's doing and those events are something that God's superintending over and just because we don't like them we want to kind of fight against it and the word of the Lord is saying to us, listen, submit. Just submit. You're God's sovereign. Just let God do what he's doing. He's sovereign over what's unfolding and just yield and lean into it and let it happen. And trust that God's in control. And here Gedaliah was trying to encourage the people to just humble themselves and serve the king of Babylon. He says, it's going to go better with you if you just yield. If you fight, it won't go well. Verse 25, but it happened in the seventh month that Ishmael, son of Netaniah, 
the son of Elishama of the royal family came with 10 men and they struck and killed Gadaliah. People usually don't like the truth. You notice that? This guy's speaking the truth. Time to shut him up. Get rid of him. The Jews, as well as the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah, and all the people, small and great, and the captains of the armies arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. They just put to death the very guy that Nebuchadnezzar put as governor over them. Verse 27 says, Now it came to pass, now take notice how the book closes. Very interesting that the Holy Spirit gives us this at the end of 2 Kings. It came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month on the 27th day of the month. Now, it's telling us here the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Now we're going back a few kings. We, we saw last time together Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king of Judah. He only reigned for three months. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And during the second conquest, he was taken prisoner by Nebuchadnezzar and brought back to the land of Babylon. So as an 18-year-old king who was evil and wicked and only reigned three months, he was conquered, made a prisoner, and put in, in an imprisonment condition back in Babylon. Now, it tells us it's been 37 years now. So we're, we fast forward ahead now. 37 years, Jehoiachin has been a captive there. And notice there's now a new ruler after Nebuchadnezzar. The Bible kind of fast forwards here in this moment historically that evil Maradek, king of Babylon, the, the king after Nebuchadnezzar, in that year he began to reign. He released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin changed from his prison garments and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given to him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. So after all of this, you know, horrific description of the the consequences of the sin of the people and the captivity and the horrible conditions that came into Jerusalem during the time of the siege and the, the horrible treatment of Nebuchadnezzar. The Bible now takes us and gives us this little cameo. The Holy Spirit fast forwards to the next ruler of Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar, evil Merodach, and how after 37 years of Jehoiachin, this 18-year-old young man who was in prison at 18 years old, after 37 years of being imprisoned, for whatever reason, it just tells us that evil Merodach decided to start being gracious to Jehoiachin after 37 years in prison. For some reason, he shows favor towards Jehoiachin. It says that he released him from prison, verse 27. He spoke kindly to him. He gave him a more prominent seat than all of his other officials in Babylon. He let him change from his prison garments and he ate bread regularly at the king's table. Now, we look at that, that's incredible kindness, incredible grace to an unworthy man and the Bible is silent in regards to why this grace and favor and kindness is even being shown to him by an evil king. This man, evil Merodach. There's just this, whatever reason, favor and kindness and gracious uh, you know, display towards him in this situation. 
Now, what is interesting, it's almost as if perhaps the Holy Spirit is encouraging us because this man, Jehoiachin, is the, the last of the, the dynasty of the line of David, which ultimately becomes the dynasty and the line of the Messiah, Jesus. And so here in this very interesting way, we see the messianic line being followed. Matthew chapter 1 traces this man and his lineage in that genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, it traces this man, this particular king and this line because it's the line of David, which brings us to the line of Jesus, the Savior and the Messiah. And perhaps the Holy Spirit just puts us in here as this beautiful testimony of the grace of God despite the horrible sin and failures of humanity. That though God's people fail horribly, I mean horribly, the things that Judah did, the sins they committed, the, the vile acts, I mean, the, they, they were so evil and rebellious. Honestly, they probably make most of us, with all of our sins combined in this room, maybe look like saints. And I'm not saying some of us in this room haven't done some pretty dumb and wretched and wrong things. But God shows all of this darkness and all the failures of humanity and then in the midst of it, God moves on this king, evil Merodach's heart, and he starts to show grace and kindness to this man who was totally unworthy after 37 years in prison. 37 years, that's a long time to be in prison. And all of a sudden, God's grace begins to fall upon this man's life. People are being kind to him. He's released from this sentence that he'd been under for so long, suffering. And there's a change that comes into his life. And God begins to move. And, and this bright spot begins to come on the scene. You know, what a great reminder for all of us. Listen, I don't care what you've done in your life. And God, for that matter, doesn't care what you've done in your life. We serve a God who is the God of all grace. And the Bible says that when even sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And no matter how much we have failed, how big of a mess we had made, how long we can get ourselves locked up in a big mess, we are never beyond the grace and favor and kindness of God being shown to us in our lives. God wants to do that. He loves you. And he can get you out of any darkness and any mess and anything you've got yourself into. And here, just a beautiful description of all the notes God could end off on. He just ends off on a note of grace, saying, look, despite all that rottenness of humanity, instead just revel in the grace and the goodness of God, that he's that kind and helpful even to us in the worst spots in our lives. Let's stand together. Let's pray.